Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Natalie Candler, filling in for Faith Amaphidon this week. Thanks for tuning in. With the summer heat picking up, more and more Boston residents are seeking a cool place to relax. But for many, swimming is not an option and can pose a danger for those who've never been taught how to swim. Mayor Michelle Wu hopped in the water at the reopening of the newly renovated Paris Street Pool in East Boston in celebration of the new swimming program that will have Boston's young people splishing and splashing. The mayor's office, the Office of Human Services, and Boston Center for Youth and Families announced new investments in water safety with the Swim Safe Boston initiative, aiming to support resident safety at Boston's beaches, pools, and water bodies by offering free swim lessons throughout the summer, operated by the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston. Fewer than half of all black and Latino children in the United States report ever taking swim lessons, compared to nearly 75% of their white peers. So today in Boston, we have an opportunity to ensure that every pool, every beach, every body of water in Boston is safe for all of our families and young people to cool off and have fun. This racial disparity is rooted in the lack of accessibility and experience from previous generations. One in four black parents and one in three Latino parents in the United States never learned to swim. For white parents, it's one in 25. This gap impacts younger generations and perpetuates a public health issue that can be a matter of life or death. I want to acknowledge so many who did not get the opportunity to learn to swim as children now live with fear, anxiety, and shame as adults. I want us to embrace these folks as well. People who grew up in the city, maybe blocks from the beach, and never got the chance to learn how to feel safe in the water or even around the water. Fear of the water can trickle down from generation to generation. And breaking the cycle is key to reducing the risk of drowning in our black and brown communities. So today, I want to encourage everyone here to reach out to a friend or a loved one who does not know how to swim and encourage them to come out and sign up for lessons. We have so many great providers and so many skilled swim instructors who would love to have the opportunity, as I did, to share the joy and freedom that comes with swimming. Swimming can relieve stress, bring communities together, and provide job opportunities to those who are qualified to be lifeguards. Not to mention, swim lessons can drastically lower rates of fatal drowning. We need to reach out and make sure that every young person in this city of Boston knows that they can go to a pool in this city to get lessons, to learn, to get incredible lifeguards. The other thing too is, there's jobs that all of a sudden you can be a lifeguard as a young person. So this is the best of Boston. Some people say that learning how to swim and being confident in swimming is better than the day they get their driver's license for a kid. The confidence that young people have to be able to go in the water, enjoy the pool, the beach, and not have fear for their safety is such an incredible self-esteem confidence booster for kids. Now everyone in Boston is welcome to hop in and stay a while. The Sumner Tunnel is closed for the summer, causing traffic, delays, and forcing thousands of residents to change their daily commute. Special reporter Michael Templeton asked Boston how they're dealing with the detours. From July 5th to August 31st, the Sumner Tunnel is closed, affecting many Bostonians and their daily routines. Some residents mentioned what this closure reveals about the neglect of the current transportation system and why we find ourselves in this complex situation. It would have been nice if they could, like, figure out a compromise to like have like certain days where they're open and closed like so it's not a full-time closure because mm -hmm. that just makes it harder it makes other places slammed it's just it's not a nice 
like commute wise like especially if you're going in now like you have to take what the bridge yeah but it just um it makes everything like not efficient the multi-million dollar restoration project aims to repair and improve the walls deck and ceiling inside the tunnel the major construction has been talked about for over 30 years and for those who've lived in Boston for decades, it's been a long time coming. It's a complete inconvenience, and over the years, I mean, I've watched it since the 90s, nobody takes responsibility. Nobody wants to spend any money on anything that needs to be spent. I mean, you have something, you have to maintain it, and people don't. Just, they know. should have had better board members on the team. Better board members? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. They just look at the, um, you know, it's a lot of political assignments there, and. They look the other way because it doesn't affect them. Some of the board members don't even live in our state, is what I understand, this one. Um, so I blame the board and I blame the politics that goes on. Well, I think it's the right move. I mean, safety overall is a concern, you know, for what everyone is, you know, concerned about. And it's something that's absolutely long overdue. So I think it's the right move now, you know, save us headaches down the road. Some residents have already felt the effects of the change, while others haven't noticed a difference. I can't say I've noticed more volume. I'm Blue Line, and the Blue Line is pretty short and it's pretty accessible, so I've, ha I've had no issues. I wouldn't say on the train, but I feel like on my way to uh, the Wonderland station, there's been like a lot more traffic since I drive from Lynn, um, so that lean weight, it's, it's a little bit more packed um, in the mornings. Some people mentioned the benefits of this closure and how the improvements from the city can shape a better Boston. The T overall needs to be smoother. Um, the delays that they've had, hopefully, you know, um, those are improved after the tunnel repairs and so forth. Just faster commute times. I hope to see that things are more efficient and they finished what they needed to do because it's just, it sucks having to take the train when you like have a car and you have to like wait, like what? Every train comes like 15 minutes. It just takes a while, especially if you just missed your train, you know? Yeah. With the new improvements in the works, Boston residents hope for the best once the project is completed. I would like the, the train to be like a little bit faster again. That would, that would be nice. Or maybe um, like an expedited train on the, on the morning. During this closing, many commuters have been forced to find a transportation alternative. MassDOT has announced a second closure of the tunnel in the summer of 2024 for additional repairs. Until then, Bostonians are just going to have to hold out hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Reporting from Government Center, I'm Michael Templeton for BNN News. Lack of accessibility to fresh food is a long-standing problem in low-income neighborhoods and is often found in communities of color. And sadly, Boston is not immune to this issue. The Dorchester Food Co-op is a soon-to-be open community and worker-owned grocery store dedicated to providing healthy, fresh, and sustainable food options to the community with a commitment to supporting local farmers and producers, reducing food waste, and advancing economic opportunity through neighborhood engagement. We invited John Santos, General Manager of Dorchester Food Co-op, to the studio to discuss how co-ops pose an alternative to traditional grocery stores and what can be expected once the doors are open. Enjoy the interview. The co-op actually became incorporated in, in 2012. So it's been a bit of a journey to get to where we are today with a brick and mortar. 
Um, the co-op pretty much existed as a community organization attending events and parades and farmers markets and supporting the community any way that it could at, while it was searching for both the funding and the location. So that was well before I became involved with the co-op. But um, when the building was located and arrangements were made, um, they proceeded to break ground. And it's been about a year, I think, that it's been where there's actually a building there and the, the co-op is in place, at least in the construction phase of it, you know. We were located at 195 Bowdoin Street, which is right at the intersection of Bowdoin and Topliff, across from the Family Nurturing Center on Bowdoin. Um, so we have a, an apartment building, we have an apartment complex, 41 apartments above us, all low-income housing, and we've drawn a lot of staff uh, for our store from that, that complex itself. Uh, we occupy the first floor, it's about a total of 6,000 square feet, maybe uh, 4,500 of it is retail sales floor. So it's, it's not a giant store, it's, it's comfortable, it's easy to get in and out of, it's going to be a great shop. Um, and I signed on uh, in November. I was running a co-op in, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island called Urban Greens. And that was also a startup. Um, nice location, it's right, in, right on Cranston Street in Providence. And we, did, we were very instrumental in supporting the city during COVID and getting food out to, to various segments of the community. And um, what was really exciting about joining the team here at Dorchester was just how much work they had done in advance of the brick and mortar. Uh, to really reach out and, and make those connections in the community and also get feedback from the community about what they wanted. See, mm -hmm. the Dorchester Food Co-op is Boston's only um, community-owned grocery store. And it was important in line with what a co-op is to make sure you had feedback and, and direction from the community, both what they need and what they want, as well as those attributes like you know, problematic things like trash removal and delivery types, everybody gets to weigh in. And, and, and that listening component is critical for a co-op because we are owned by the community. Right. You just talked a little bit about um, the people in the building above who are involved in, in the co-op. Can you speak a little bit more about who these individuals are yeah. and who applies? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, as we get our funding from a number of different uh, organizations and we have to report. So these numbers are easy for me to give you because we, we watch them carefully. It's a very deliberate process in the hiring of, of a co-op. 88% um, of our staff, we have a total of 36 staff members. So 88% of our staff come from um, Dorchester, Roxbury and Mattapan. And then there's just a small percentage after that that come from maybe Jamaica Plains, I come from Providence, so from different areas, you know. Right. Um, it's uh, about two to one in terms of uh, from gender, male to female, and then we have some non-binary individuals as part of wow. our team too. How is the co-op challenging the current food system? Great question. So the current food system in the United States is really built around distribution, less around nutrition and, and more around how can we get, how can we grow this product efficiently and sell it all over the country, right? So it, it means that we get strawberries in January that are big and beautiful and taste like nothing, right? So um, the co-op doesn't depend on those main sources of product, the, the big um, 
big business distribution, if you will. Right. We're looking for local producers and as much as we can. Right. Our, our beef, and local for us, is about 100 miles within the 100-mile radius of the store. Mm -hmm. And so we have a fabulous company that's supplying us with our beef that comes out of um, Vermont called Cutting Hill Farms. They do organic beef. It's all pasture-raised. They're going to bring us our own eggs, too. They do our own private label eggs. So um, there's just stuff, you know, organizations like there's a, there's a, a co-op in Western Mass that we're going to be getting our lettuce from. Um, there's a bunch of suppliers for our milk. So as much as possible, we try to buy locally. And that helps serve our mission of trying to be sustainable, support the local community, cut down on any um, carbon you know, emissions and, and tra transporting goods across the whole country. Um, and we end up with actually better product, um, fresher product, product that wouldn't make the journey. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the durability of a journey is not as important to us as the nutritional value and the taste that we can get. And so we get more frequent deliveries. It's very much old school grocery shopping, neighborhood grocery shopping. Right. And what are the, some of the unique features of the co-op? Uh, well, there's, there's quite a few. The, in, in the build out of the co-op, uh, we were very careful to try to consider the environment as much as possible. So the, we have a solar array on the roof that we support with our electrical purchases. Um, the gas that we use to, to cool, keep all our foods cold or frozen, uh, it's not your typical Freon gas that damages the ozone. Uh, it's, it's carbon dioxide, what we actually exhale. So it was a little bit more money to set that system up, but uh, we know that when it leaks, it will leak at some point. Um, it will do no harm to the environment. We're, we're working with Ciro, which is a local uh, composting co-op in Dorchester, uh, and they'll be picking up our compost, and we'll be buying it back to sell as a soil. So you'll be able to kind of it's full circle, right? And they're working very aggressively with the city of Boston to get approval to use the Dorchester Food Co-op as a community drop-off point. So if you have compost, you don't have to hang around till pickup day. You can just drop it off at the co-op and it'll quickly end up into our local farms and, and that. So that's one of the unique aspects of the store. Um, another unique aspect is some of the goods that we carry. Now, I spoke about meat. And when you grow meat in a uh, responsible way, it's not inexpensive. It costs a little bit more money. Um, but we always seek to try to find ways to help customers find some balance. So our, our rices and our beans, we're going to be purchasing, purchasing those in 100-pound sacks that we'll be able to portion into our, our bulk dispensers. And you can come in and buy a different type of bean every night by just enough for tonight. You don't need to have that big bag of beans or that big bag of rice. You can do the same thing with rice. And we'll be able to offer you those items based on a 100-pound purchase on our part. So it's a great way to save money for, for you, you know. The other aspect uh, of our bulk department, we call it the refillery. And it, it, this has to do with liquid bulk. So think about your $23 jug of Tide that you have, right? Mm -hmm. You use it up and then you toss that or recycle that container away, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and you start all over again. Well, save it. And we have bulk laundry detergent, bulk shampoo, bulk cleaning fluids, as well as olive oils and maple syrup. We have a whole liquid bulk department. Wow. And you can come in and you can buy just what you need. Right. You know, I, need, uh, I only need a half a container. I want to try it. So those are options. Those are just a couple of areas 
where we stand out. We, we, we uh, look a little different than your average market. The newest exhibition in Back Bay, Body Worlds, The Anatomy of Happiness, will amaze you with its fusion of science and creativity as it explores the human body and that positive emotion. Dr. Angelina Whaley, director of the Institute of Plastination, joined Faith in Studio to delve into the fascinating world of preserved art and what we can learn from the process of plastination. Body Worlds, The Anatomy of Happiness opens in the hub of Back Bay this July. I would love to start with uh, you talking a little bit about what this exhibit is and what exactly viewers are looking at. Well, Body Worlds is all about you. It's all about life. Uh, each and every uh, of our exhibits holds a huge collection of anatomically dissected specimens that show everything that we have underneath our skin, all the muscles, nerves, organs, arteries, and so on. And this time, this exhibit is accompanied by a theme called the anatomy of happiness. Mm. And um, this is not meant to be a happiness guide to explain what happiness is or uh, what you should do to be happy. It is more to make people understand that happiness is a bodily function. And it is not only providing us this, with this beautiful feeling, um, but it is affecting our entire body system. It has an effect on each and every bodily system. For instance, people who are uh, more satisfied in their life, who are more happy in their lives, um, they are less likely to experience a heart attack. Mm -hmm. They are less likely to develop uh, diabetes or cancer or um, autoimmune diseases. And on average, they also live longer. So there are very good reasons to take a closer look on the anatomy of happiness. Yes, how can I be more happy today? And uh, many or all of the full body specimens are created through a process called plastination. Uh, would you care to walk our viewers through what exactly that process is? Yes, all specimens we have on display are real. They are from people who have decided during lifetime to be part of it. So we have a body donation program where people sign in. And um, the specimens, uh, they are preserved by a technology called plastination. That is a quite complicated process, but to put it very simple, it is a vacuum process that allows us to exchange the tissue water against a polymer, like silicone rubber, for instance. So uh, each individual cell that contained water before <clears throat> is now filled with the polymer, and that renders the specimen dry. It is orderless. You can literally grasp it. Um, and what is very important for an exhibition like Body Worlds is we can preserve it in a very beautiful, nice to look at uh, way. So that even if you come with hesitation, whether you can stand it or not, um, it is um, that it is really wowing our visitors. People feel so much surprised and uh, glad that they have this opportunity to see and experience firsthand what they are made of. Because when walking through the exhibit, what is very typical, that people start to see themselves inside these specimens. It is like self-reflection without a mirror. And to many people, it's so powerful that very typically they say, I've got a complete different view on my inner self and never again will I take my body for granted. Wow. 
Uh, and happiness itself is experienced differently from person to person. Uh, but uh, as a doctor, how does happiness manifest in the body? As a matter of fact, uh, happiness is a bodily function. It's all inside us. Um, there's a stimulus and uh, our brain reacts with the electrochemical uh, reaction. And these neurotransmitters that are expelled into the bloodstream, they don't have only this effect in our brain, but everywhere. This is also why uh, we can see in what mood a person is. A happy person has a strong muscle tone. You can hear that in the voice. You can even hear that over the phone. And vice versa, uh, if you feel depressed uh, or uh, sad, uh, you, you are weak, your, your voice is weak, your eyes look different. So um, again, it is affecting our entire body. And whatever we do, it has an effect on us. Mm. And what percentage of happiness would you say is actually within our control as people? Well, there is uh, science um, um, that suggests that about 50% is in our genes um, and 10% uh, our circumstances, where we live, how we live, and 40%, 40% is in our own control. It is um, the way um, we make our decisions, what we expect from our lives, uh, how we judge certain circumstances. So there is really a very good portion that helps us to shape our lives uh, to, to a better life. And what would you say that this intersection of science and art uh, teaches uh, the people who come to view this exhibit about themselves? I personally believe, and that is very dear to my heart, that people realize uh, that we don't have a body. We literally are our bodies. It is the very basis of our uh, entire life. Without our bodies, we could not have any um, experience, no thoughts, no actions, nothing. So um, we are our bodies. And I think I repeat myself, but whatever we do and what or we don't do, it has an effect on us. How we live, how we eat, whether we are physically active, that all has an effect on us. So uh, we are the masters, so to say, of our lives. How can viewers experience Body World's Anatomy of Happiness for themselves? Well, we have a wonderful uh, collection on display that uh, has never been to the United States um, before and uh, it is set up in certain sections. So I uh, start uh, this time with our happiness control center, so to say, with the nervous system uh, and it explains where in which areas of our brain happiness is generated um, and then it uh, continues with the locomotor system and cardiovascular system and everything. So you're guided through all the major um, various system and, and along the way you do not only learn about the bodily system but you learn about how um, the system is affected and uh, there are a lot of uh, tiny information all around happiness so there's a lot to experience 
a lot to see and I can only invite everyone to take this great opportunity and learn about your anatomy of happiness. Thank you for tuning in Boston. For BNN News, I'm Natalie Candler. Have a great evening.